John Rogers is a name that you should know. Uh, in 16th century England, during the reign of Roman Catholic Queen Mary I, or Bloody Mary, a name that she had earned from executing around 300 Protestants, John Rogers was a Protestant gospel preacher and strong opponent of, of the idolatry and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. After preaching a, a bold public sermon, John Rogers was put on house arrest by the Roman Catholic Church for about five months, then put in prison for a year after facing a council uh, who examined him theologically and a commission who sentenced him to death for heresy, John Rogers was asked to revoke his doctrine, to which he responded, that which I have preached I will seal with my blood. Facing execution, Rogers was denied any conversation with his wife. And as John Rogers was walking to the stake to be burned alive, he was joyfully singing psalms. And he saw his wife by the road holding their little baby whom he had never met, his ten other children with them. Before the wood was lit, Rogers was given a chance to recant. He declined. As one of the sheriffs pronounced him a heretic and said to Rogers, I will not pray for thee, Rogers responded, but I will pray for you. John Rogers was burned to ashes on February 4th, 1555 as Bloody Mary's first martyr. John Rogers shined brighter in this world than the flames which took his life. Why is that compelling? It's compelling because John Rogers worked out his salvation, not in fear and trembling of the Roman Catholic Church, not in fear and trembling of the flame, blames, but in fear and trembling of God. His story is compelling because the work of God is so evident in John Rogers' will and work. As a child of God, John Rogers was a stunningly bright light in the world. He joyfully held fast to the word of life as death breathed its hatred on him. John Rogers isn't great. God is great in John Rogers. Right now, there is a missionary couple from my denomination uh, going through a very, very hard time. This sermon's going to be online, so I'll leave their identity and location confidential, but the husband is incarcerated right now because the government believes that his gospel ministry is a national threat to their national interests, and this godly man is suffering for the work of Christ and holding fast to the word of life. This man isn't great. God is great in this man. There is a man in this church I'll keep his name confidential, who realizes he's not where he could be spiritually, which is exemplary humility, but he has a hunger to grow spiritually, and I've seen him take initiative, and I've seen him lead. I see his desire. I'm watching him step up and move ahead, and I've heard uh, that he has talked to his non-Christian friends about Jesus, and that's encouraging because God is at work in this man. This man is not great. God is great in this man. When you see committed, selfless, risk-taking brothers and sisters doing the hard work of Christ, what you're seeing 
In them is the work of God. It's the work of Christ in their desires and in their actions. You are witnessing God's power. The people aren't great. God is great in the people. They were at one time dead in sin, but then Christ made them alive and empowered them by the Spirit. And whatever good you see them doing, you're watching God at work in them. There are no true heroes of the faith. There is only one hero, and his name is Jesus, and he gets all the credit because he makes dead men alive and empowers them to do great things. And so my aim this morning is quite simple. I want you to see how God worked in three men, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, In the work of these men, I want you to see the sovereign work of God. Your challenge is to look through the men in order to see what God was accomplishing through them. I just want you to see God this morning in these men. And when you see God's work in these men, I hope two things happen inside of you. Your trust and joy in God intensify. And you risk more for the gospel. That's what I hope happens. And I'm, I'm going to give you eight encouraging things that I see in these men, in the text. And I don't want you to admire the men as much as I want you to admire God's work in the men. Anything admirable you see in them is solely God at work in them, which is verses 12 and 13. And hopefully, see God in them, seeing God in them, hopefully that encourages you. And build you up that God is at work in you who trust in Christ alone. If this passage is a painting, then I'm asking you to study it very closely to see the very fine brush strokes of the painter. Here's what I see in these men. Number one, hope and trust in the Lord. People are made strong when they hope and trust in the Lord. In the sovereignty of God. Paul said in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul trusted that the Lord was in control of his circumstances. Even little details like the deployment of Timothy. He wanted to send Timothy to Philippi to be an encouragement to the church, encouragement to the people, but he didn't just send him. He he hoped in the Lord Jesus to send him, a hope that was anchored in the will of Christ. And Paul was completely surrendered, completely subjected to God's sovereign plan for his life. Would he be executed? Would he be liberated? Well, Paul didn't know that. God didn't reveal that to him. We don't think But whatever God had decreed for Paul, Paul was glad to do it, glad to oblige, glad to go along with it. Yet in the passage, you'll see that Paul had much confidence that he actually would be set free and see the Philippians again. Maybe God revealed that to him, maybe not. Notice in verse 24 that Paul trusted not in his circumstances, not in justice from Rome, not in fate, not on himself, but he trusted solely in the lordship of Christ over his circumstances. Paul even attributes Epaphroditus' healing to God's mercy and not the human immune system or doctors. So there's just trust in who Christ is in in these passages. Uh, 
don't forget what Paul said earlier in chapter 1, verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. His trust was anchored somewhere. It was anchored in God's ability to work inside of his circumstances. Before you put your hope and trust in something, ask whether it holds supremacy over your circumstances. These three men are exemplary because they put their hope and trust in the Lord alone who is supreme over all things. Number two, joy in and longing for the church. If you scan down over these verses, you can see that Paul really wanted uh, to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to them, to be a great encouragement to them. And he wanted to return there to Philippi himself because he took joy in the Philippians and, and desired their well-being. Why did Paul want to send Timothy soon? Verse 19, so that, here comes the purpose, I too may be cheered by news of you. Cheered, that means to be uh, in good spirits, to be of good courage, to feel glad. Paul wanted to hear that the Philippian church was living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ so that he could experience joy in their faithfulness to God. Now what about the church in Philippi would cheer him? It wasn't that they would sing cool songs. It wasn't that their church building would look like an airport. It wasn't that they would have a slick website. Or that all of them would be between the ages of 19 and 35 with trendy haircuts and clothing and a mutual love of espresso and and they're really out there winning the millennials. It wasn't that. If Paul was going to be cheered by news of the Philippians, it would be because they were living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, and working out their salvation together with fear and trembling. Paul wanted Timothy to go to Philippi to see the church living worthy of the gospel, and he wanted Timothy then to return and to give a good report that would boost Paul's joy. Paul's joy. Not only would Timothy get joy by going and seeing, but Paul would get joy when Timothy comes back and and Paul just hears about their faithfulness. That is amazing. Paul took joy in the faithfulness of the Philippian Christians, the church. Remember chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul thanked God for the Philippians and prayed with joy because of the Philippians? If you jump down to verses 28 and 29, Paul was eager to send Epaphroditus so that the Philippians would rejoice in seeing Epaphroditus again. Paul's eagerness was directly connected to the rejoicing, the joy, the gladness of the church. He wanted the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus with much joy or with all joy. So for the Philippians, think about this, for the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus and to take joy in him was for the church to take joy in the church. Are you following me? You understand that? These men invested their lives in the church. And they experienced joy in the vitality and faithfulness of the church. They were happier in God when their brothers and sisters were happier in God. 
All three of these men are examples of how Christians should take joy in and long for the church. Doesn't it cheer you to see the Holy Spirit working in your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you long with great joy to see your brothers and sisters grow? When you do, what a light you are. What a light you are. I like sharing with you particularly helpful quotes. Sometimes they're long, and I read them. And, and um, this is one powerful quote that I'd like to share with you. It's from Dr. Dennis Johnson. I think it is so good and so compelling. So please listen carefully. This is what Dr. Dennis Johnson writes. The yearning of Paul and Epaphroditus to be with their brothers and sisters in Christ stands in stark contrast to the individualism and frenetic busyness of many Christians today who regard involvement with other believers in worship and fellowship as a duty to be discharged as efficiently as possible, lest the family of God unduly interrupt one's private schedule, which is already overfilled with commitments and amusements. The pace of life in urban and suburban communities is driving and demanding, leaving little time to be spent with people for purposes that seem unprofitable for commerce or career advancement. Agrarian cultures often present fewer options and demands, but physical exhaustion and distance pose obstacles to the investment of time with fellow believers. Whether our social context works for or against the church's life together, what will make the difference is not the ease or difficulty of getting together, but the yearning in our hearts. Cultivate that yearning, for it is the appetite that anticipates the very joys of eternity when the family of God will gather in celebration at our Father's banquet table, end of quote. Is your schedule so jam-packed full of other commitments and amusements that it's, it's hard for you to take much joy in the church at all, in your brothers and sisters? Do you long for her, the church? Number three, genuine concern for the church. Verses 19 through 30 show how much um, these three men Uh, were concerned, how much concern they had for the church. Paul's pastoral heart is coming through his letters, big time, all of them, and throughout this one as well. And, And these verses that we're reading this morning brim with loving concern. Look at verse 20. Timothy was a godly man. For I have no one like him, Paul said, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, other men and women were faithful in the gospel alongside of Paul, Uh, Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 show that. But Timothy was like a son to Paul. They had a special relationship. They were two peas in a pod. They were kindred spirits. They were co-workers in the gospel. And Timothy could be uniquely trusted. He, He had genuine concern. Who is genuinely concerned about you? who is genuinely concerned about your growth in Christ and your holiness and and how much you look like Jesus. Well, those people that you identify, you want to have those people around you often. And I want to mention three men who I've seen practice genuine concern for this church, and it's only fitting that all of their names are Timothy. Isn't that amazing? I met with Tim Heritage. Uh, he was the interim pastor 
uh, of this church before I came. And I met with him the other day at Subway. I was late. The poor man sat there and ate his sub while I'm in my office working on my sermon. This is me. I'm absent-minded. I will fail you. Forgive me. I'm sorry. It's coming. One of these days, I will miss an appointment with you or something. Anyway, he was very gracious with me. We sat and talked. And he is being so faithful for Christ to endure very difficult circumstances and to keep pressing on. Why? Because he has genuine concern for the church of Christ. Tim Thompson, he's not here. <laughs> I can say anything I want. Well, he has a deep desire and love and care for the saints of Jerusalem Church. If you know him closely, you can see it in his life. And not only through music, um, but through discipleship. He has a legitimate interest and concern in the church of seeing the saints grow. It is so evident in his life. He is genuinely concerned about our growth and welfare in Christ. I didn't ask these guys about this. Tim Nichols. Tim Nichols is one reason why I accepted the pastoral position of this church. Uh, Since I've come here, I've seen our brother think and act carefully and biblically in the best interests of this congregation. He is genuinely concerned for the spiritual welfare of this church. Tim's are a great blessing. Tim's are very encouraging. Pick a Tim, watch his life, and imitate And you'll be in good shape. You'll be challenged to grow because of their genuine and great concern for the church. I have been deeply and personally blessed by the Tims. People who have a great and genuine concern for the church are worth imitating. Of course, they're not perfect. (laughs) No brainer. But boy, are they worth imitating as they imitate Christ. Their concern is God working in them? Number four, putting fleshly interests aside to seek the interests of Jesus Christ. You don't see Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus selfishly pursuing their own interests and amusements. That's part of the reason we're studying them as a godly example 2,000 years, about 2,000 years after they died. These men made their mark because God was at work in them to seek first the interests of Christ. Paul didn't say of Timothy... I have no one like him because Timothy lived for himself. In verse 21, Paul said, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. There are different theories here about uh, who Paul is talking about. I think if you go back to chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, you see who he's talking about. The brothers who were preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. But there Timothy was. Timothy was different. Timothy was not like those other preachers who had selfish interests in mind. Timothy put his fleshly interests aside in order to pursue first the interests of Christ. Verse 22 certainly shows Timothy's worth. And Paul said to Timothy, served with him in the gospel. Christ's interests, please get this. Christ's interests must be, number one, to serve faithfully in the gospel. If anything else gets in there and that's your main interest, you won't be serving Christ. And don't think for a minute that these men did not wrestle and battle with their fleshly interests. They did. You just read Romans 7 and you'll get a picture of what Paul was struggling with. 
but God worked in them so that their greatest interest became more and more the interest Christ, of Christ. Men like this, and this, this will perhaps shatter some of the way that you've seen Old Testament and New Testament figures, they weren't superstars. They were not superstars. They are spirit-filled men being used of God. And guess what? We're spirit-filled too. We have the same spirit inside of us. They were used in a unique way, no doubt, but we have the same spirit. God is calling us to put our fleshly interests aside and pursue the interests of Christ first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what Jesus said. And so guess what Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus set their minds to? To to make the interest of Christ first. First, the most encouraging people are those who take the word of Christ seriously. The people who are most worth imitating, the ones who accomplish most for the cause of Christ, are those who make it their life's ambition to seek the interests of Jesus Christ first. First. Look for those kind of people, the the interests of Jesus Christ first people, and surround yourself with them, and and, and hang out with them, and talk with them, and ask them questions, ask them to mentor you, watch them, and imitate them. Allow them to be close enough to you that they understand your heart, and they can encourage you and strengthen you. You need people like that in your life. Number five. Proven and worthy track record in slave-like service and sacrifice for the gospel. Do you remember how Paul began his, his letter? Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul knew who he was and Paul knew what he was supposed to do. How could Paul write verse 20 about Timothy? No one like him? Really? Timothy was steadfast in gospel ministry. Timothy was steadfast. Paul said this about Timothy in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church, in every local church. Later in 1 Corinthians 16, 10, Paul said Timothy was doing the work of the Lord as he was. Paul told the Thessalonian church, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. And now, verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. That word served in the Greek is a noun, or no, 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 I'm sorry, it's a verb, but it's similar to the noun slave. And so what that means to serve is to serve as a slave, which is marking his, his uh, language in this letter. Proven worth is when you test or examine something, which then proves to be valuable. Kind of like a diamond that you put under a microscope and you see its value. Timothy was a slave of Christ who sacrificed much for the gospel because he loved Christ. And that showed his proven worth. And then there was Epaphroditus. Paul described him in five ways. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, and minister to my need. All great things. Epaphroditus was Paul's brother in Christ. He was Paul's co-worker in the trenches of ministry. He was Paul's companion warrior dressed in the armor of God. 
fighting the good fight of faith. He had been sent from Philippi to Paul in prison to bring a message of of hope and comfort to Paul, which was demanding considering the distance he had to travel, consider the rigors of travel, and he was a servant. A servant sent to meet the needs of Paul, to care for Paul. You got to see how much Epaphroditus sacrificed for Paul, sacrificed for Christ, sacrificed for the church. Now, considering these verses, let me ask you a question. Do you think Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus sacrificed anything for Christ? Prison, sorrow, bad health, lengthy and rigorous travel, long hours, threat of death. You think they sacrificed anything? Look for the people who have sacrificed the most for Christ. Find them. The the, the people who have a a slave-like commitment to the work of Christ, who live to advance the gospel and watch them study their lives closely. And and what you'll end up um, to do, what you'll do in that process is you will be seeing God's wonderful grace at work. You want to see God's power? Watch those people who sacrifice much for the church, for the cause of Christ. Jim Elliott was murdered doing the work of Christ. Listen to what he wrote to his parents before he left on his dangerous, very dangerous mission. Well, he ended up getting speared to death to South America. Just listen to this. To his parents, I do not wonder that you are saddened at the word of my going to South America. Grieve not then if your son seems to desert you, but rejoice. Rather, seeing the will of God done gladly. Those with a proven track record for Christ are those who gladly carry out the will of Christ in slave-like service and sacrifice, even if it means they give their life. Christ is so precious that these people see the preciousness of Christ and they're overjoyed just to be part of his mission. And so they give their entire life just to, just to be with him, just to walk with him, just to do something in his name. We have a very, this is not in the notes, we have a very sick sister right now in the hospital, Ivy Doherty, who's got about three significant health things going on. And I met with her last night, and I sat there and talked about Christ with Ivy and Ray, and talked about Scripture, and just saw Christ beaming from this woman who is in a bad place medically. What does that say to the pastor? I need Jesus. They're they're encouraging me as I'm sitting there. I need people like that. Number six. Compassion for the church. You can see Paul's compassion in his desire to encourage the Philippians in their suffering and to send Timothy, send Epaphroditus to them, encourage them, build them up. Timothy's genuine concern in verse 20 was compassionate. Certainly it was. Perhaps Epaphroditus shines compassion most brightly in this passage. Pay close attention to verse 26. Epaphroditus was so sick, he almost died. The Philippians heard about his illness, yet Epaphroditus was distressed, not because he was ill, but because they had heard that he was ill. 
He didn't want them to be anxious about him. He longed to go to them and to show them, hey, I'm healed. Everything is okay. Look at me. I'm fine. I'm here with you. You guys don't need to be anxious. That's compassion. Compassionate people are great to have around. I'm not one, so I need people with compassion to be around me to help me see Jesus in that way. I had, when I take the tests, you know, the personality test, my compassion's like, oh, man, is that, does he have any ounce of that? We need people to be compassionate. Compassionate people are great to have around because in their compassion, we see Jesus at work. We see Jesus. We need compassionate people that give us God-glorifying compassion. If you think about it, true compassion is inherently selfless because it sees the needs of others and seeks to lessen the burden of it. John Piper said this, here is a vocation that will bring you more satisfaction than if you became a millionaire 10 times over. Develop the extraordinary skill for detecting the burdens of others and devote yourself daily to making them lighter. Boom! Consider that as a way of life. Consider that as a way of life. Number seven, receiving God's mercy. Compassion for others overflows from delight in receiving compassion from God. Wherever you find a truly compassionate and merciful person, you will find great delight in them receiving the mercy and compassion of God. As Romans 9, 9 teaches, no one is entitled to God's mercy. It is not your right to be shown mercy by God. Your right is to be decimated by God. His judgment, his wrath, his righteous fury, that is our right. Because of original and actual sin, we all deserve the fullness of God's wrath and justice, not his mercy, but God chooses. It is God by his free will and pleasure to choose to extend mercy in order to do something, in order to display the incredible kindness of his nature. God gave salvific mercy to Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. He saved them. But God gave more. He healed Epaphroditus. Healed them flat out. It would have been right for God to take Epaphroditus' life, but God instead chose to completely heal this man. What incredible mercy. Look at verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. God took mercy, um, pity, on Epaphroditus and Paul. And mercifully healed Epaphroditus of his, his deadly illness. Epaphroditus got to live. Epaphroditus got to continue to minister in the name of Christ. And God was merciful to Paul because Paul didn't have sorrow upon sorrow in the loss of his good friend and coworker. God was just pouring mercy on these men. The most encouraging people are those who are most grateful for the mercy that God has shown them. It takes a great act of the Holy Spirit to awaken the human heart to be thankful for the mercy that God shows. When people don't think they're that bad, it's amazing sometimes how good people think they are. When people don't think they're that bad, when they think that they're better in comparison to others, when they think somehow that God owes them something because they have been so good, they make God's mercy look small and insignificant. They do very little for God, which belittles God. 
Self-centered and self-sufficient people do not make God's mercy look glorious. Self-centered and self-sufficient people overlook countless ways that God shows up in their life and gives mercy and shows mercy time in, time out, again and again. And when they feel so self-sufficient and when they or we are so prideful in our own abilities, oh, how it belittles the glory of God's mercy and compassion. If you want to lead lead others, let them see humility in you. Let them see desperation for God. Let them see that you understand how depraved you really are and how desperate you are for God and let them see in you not only the acknowledgement that you need God's mercy, but how much you prize, how much you treasure, how much you enjoy the mercy God shows you. Number eight, last one, risking big in gospel ministry. Look at verse 29. Why should the Philippians receive Epaphroditus with all joy? Why should they honor men like Epaphroditus? Well, verse 30 explains what warrants honor in the church. Who should we honor in our midst? It's men like this. It's women like this. Just listen. For or because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. You see, uh, soldiers who are part of the war, they fight and put their lives on the line because they so believe deep down inside in the cause for which they fight. They give their life for it because they believe that it's worth it. Epaphroditus was a fellow soldier in the gospel war. He loved Christ. He put his life on the line for the work of Christ because Christ was worth it for him. Christ was prized, valuable, treasured. That's why he was willing to be a soldier. His his illness was not um, simply natural causes, okay? His illness was actually linked in this passage to gospel ministry. He was sick because of the ministry. He put his life on the line to serve and care for Paul in a way that the Philippians could not He ended up contracting a deadly disease because of it. His love for Christ and his love for the church pushed him to risk big for gospel ministry. Epaphroditus exposed himself back then to major risk, major danger in order to work out his salvation, in order to do the work of Christ, in order to love Paul, in order to love the church. Epaphroditus was like Christ in this way. He risked big, and this is why he was honorable. That's where the honor, because you see, you're seeing the honor of Christ play out as he works in Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus doesn't get the honor. Christ in Epaphroditus gets the honor. Why do we honor and respect the disciples for what they gave? They risk big for the work of Christ. All except one were executed for Christ. Why do we honor men like William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Hudson Taylor, Jim Elliott? Because they risked big for Christ. Because they saw the value of Christ. In honoring them, we honor Christ at work in them. When men and women do incredible things for God, what do you see? What do you see? Uh, Do you say to yourself, wow, they are incredible. I would never be able to do something like that. They 
are so strong. Well, that would be very humanistic, very humanistic and sinful and missing the point. The first thing you should notice is the work of God in that person. The the, the first thing that you should think is, wow, God is incredible. We serve an awesome God that he would do that out of that weak and needy and pathetic person. If you walk away from today thinking Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are great heroes, you've missed the point of the greatest hero of all who is working in and through these men. Christ is the hero. Christ is the point. Christ is the power. Christ is the willer. Not a word, I made it up. Christ is the worker. Christ is everything. We must see the supremacy of Christ in every single Christian act that glorifies God. Anything that any of us do that gives any glory to God, we must go to Christ and say, thank you. Thank you. He is behind it. He gets credit for it. All of us are simply jars of clay, are we not? Through which this incredible bright light of the gospel is shining so we can see the power of God A faithful Christian life is beautiful because of the beauty of Christ displayed in it. Now, I show you these things today from this passage in these men so that you can see the sovereignty and the supremacy of God. And therefore, trust God with more intensity and draw more joy from God and risk more for the cause of the gospel that maybe when you see the glory of God a little bit more, you will want to take that risk to talk to that family member who doesn't know Christ. Take that risk to talk to the person who is at your work, who just swears up a storm and defames the name of God and Jesus Christ. And maybe it's your day coming this week. Maybe it's something else for you to risk, to put your head out there out of joy in serving God because God is also at work in you, my dear friends. Do not admire the men, admire God in the men. Do not honor the men, honor God in the men. Do not be strengthened by the men, be strengthened by God in the men. Do you understand what I'm getting at? God has been so very kind to show us examples of what it looks like when men and women are so sold out for Christ that they give so much only because it is the work of God's grace in them. That is why they want to do it. They are not special in that sense. It's God using them. And they are special and unique children of God in God's eyes. How sad it would be if we all just left here and this had no impact on us. We, we were not changed or moved by other people who are faithful to Christ. What if it had no effect? How sad that would be. Let God's work in the church strengthen you, build you up, give you hope, give you courage, cheer you on. Isn't that Hebrews? Is it 12, 11, 10, somewhere in there? The crowd, the, the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, draw from that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Oh, someday we'll get to to be with these men and talk Jesus forever. And I pray that, that, God, you would... Well, I thank you, God, for the people of this church who have given so much through the years for your glory and your fame and your, the expansion of your gospel from this church. You have sustained this church for close to 300 years. And that is your 
spectacular and miraculous grace at work in this church. And God, we are interested in shining brightly for you. And so, God, may we draw encouragement for how we see Jesus at work in each other. All for your glory and your praise. Amen.